Well, good morning, everyone. Man, I hope you guys are excited to be here because I am excited to be here. Uh, we are, as always, about to step into that extraordinary space where we as human beings um, are given the privilege because of God's grace to us in revealing himself to us to step into a document that he literally breathed through other people, uh, his words, his thoughts, his identity, our story, his story, and the story of us, us and God, uh, all into this extraordinary document uh, that we get to explore. And in our exploration of this document, what it tells us, what the scripture tells us, is that these words are not just words on a page where we are reading about things, but they are what the scripture calls living and breathing. In other words, that God has somehow allowed these words in their writing to have life to them that transcends pages. In other words, he will speak to us as we explore through the words that were written down centuries ago. And yet they are, they are very much alive. And, and so when, when, you, when you get to do something so, so mysterious and so wondrous, uh, there's something that's exciting about that, isn't it? It's, it's like exploring something you've, you've never jumped into and you're like, what are we going to find? Because even if we may have read this particular portion of scripture at some point in our journey, we are about to discover it in a new way because it is alive. And so that's pretty super cool, I think anyways. So here's the deal. We are in the book of Romans, right? And um, the book of Romans is, is no more special than any of the other portions of Scripture, uh, but it is unique, and part of the reason why its uniqueness uh, gets me really excited is because this particular book, uh, because Paul is writing it to a church in Rome to kind of unpack the gospel, is really, in many ways, the summary of the whole of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. Uh, it really unpacks for us the whole story in a unique and beautiful and summary way so that as we study the book of Romans, if you really know very little about everything else in Scripture when you're done with Romans, you know a lot about everything in Scripture. Isn't that awesome? And so that's a really, really cool thing to be part of. Now, in this particular book that we're uh, busy studying, Paul is writing to the church in Rome from uh, his third missionary journey. He's planning to make a transition from Antioch as his headquarters to Rome because the Roman Empire is spreading and the gospel, he wants the gospel to spread uh, on the wings of that great expansion. Realizes because of his position as a Roman citizen, he has the right to live in the Roman Empire's uh, heart and soul, uh, Rome, and so he's going to make that move. Now, he was in Corinth, uh, and in Corinth, he spent a year and a half there unpacking the gospel with the church in Corinth, and it, it was difficult. It was really difficult, right? Lots of need to clarify things, and so I, I have no doubt coming out of the Corinth experience, Paul has made the decision to send this book, this letter, on ahead for the Roman church to read so that when he arrives, he's kind of going, did you read it? And if they go, yes, he goes, okay, any questions? Instead of, let's start at the very beginning, right? So that, this is that summary. Here's the gospel. Here's the story of God. Here's the story of us. Here, here it all is. And the way that God is going to do this through Paul for us, for the church in Rome at the time, is that he is going to show us first and foremost 
the extraordinary magnitude of God's grace. The unbelievable freedom that God's grace produces for us and the beauty of the love that is God's grace because it was given to us undeserved, unsolicited, unwanted while we were still God's enemies. Okay, so uh, if you've been around uh, the, the church recently and you've been traveling with us to the book of Romans, you know we have encountered several extraordinary encounters of the magnitude of God's grace and coming through out of uh, Romans 1 and 2, which was kind of like, uh, we all need it really badly because we can't, we can't earn it, we can't deserve it, we can't solicit it, we can't get it because we don't have capacity. God gave it as a gift anyway because he loves us, Romans chapter 3, and then Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 5, unpacking the implications of God's rescue, the implications of grace. And the conclusion coming out of Romans chapter 5 is really this, that God's grace was given to you freely. It has, uh, it has freed you from being enslaved to sin. It has moved you to being uh, enslaved to Christ. In other words, you're stuck with freedom. You can't undo what Christ has done for you. And you are now in Christ positionally. So as that positional reality is true for you and I, we are now free. That's what Paul says by the end of five, which begs the question, doesn't it? If, if God's grace is indeed that freeing and it is that free to me, in other words, I didn't earn it, I didn't solicit it, I didn't get it, I didn't deserve it, then what exactly is the point of me behaving rightly? Right? Because you thought, as I did, that you behave rightly so that God will like you and give you cool stuff like heaven, right? I mean, come on, that's how we all start, isn't it? I need to behave rightly, otherwise God gets ticked and there's no rain. That's one version of it, or I don't get to go to heaven, right? This kind of depends, because we've all grown up in the human version of religion, which is we do what we are supposed to so that the gods or God does what he's supposed to, and then all is well in the world, and if you don't do what you're supposed to, then he won't do what he's supposed to, and that goes badly for you and I. What if that isn't religion? What if that's just our human ideology of how it should all function because that's what we experience with one another? What if God's love for us, what if his grace, what if his mercy is utterly free to us? And when we encounter the gospel, we realize this and we realize we are positionally transferred from death to life, from sin to God, uh, to righteousness, uh, and, and we are now free positionally then shouldn't it leave us going, well, then I'm, I'm going to do whatever I want because I don't have to do anything anymore to get what I wanted. And that's because we thought that the doing, the behaving right or wrong was about getting the reward or not getting the punishment. And what Paul begins to show us in chapter 6 is that it had nothing to do with reward or punishment, number one. Number two, the doing what's right isn't about it being right or wrong. It is about the nature of what is behind that doing. So, in Romans chapter 6, Paul starts by saying, if you're asking, if I sin and my sin makes God's grace bigger, then why wouldn't I sin more? And we talked about the two kingdoms, remember? Paul's kind of going, sorry, I'm totally confused about the question. What you're saying is, I once belonged to kingdom death, 
I now belong to kingdom life, so why shouldn't I go live like kingdom death and die? I'm totally confused. And so that whole portion was, you belong to Christ now. What kind of a fool would go and live in kingdom death, in the ways of kingdom death, when they are part of kingdom life? And then he said this. Now, sin does have its uh, enticements. It is kind of fun, right? I mean, we wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun. Temporarily, it does feel good because, because it does create a space where our immediate cravings are satisfied temporarily, okay? So it's kind of like Coca-Cola. It does quench your thirst for three seconds. Then it dehydrates you so that you need to drink more of it and pay. Water, on the other hand, doesn't do quite nearly as much of a fizzy feeling down your throat when you're out in the sun exhausted, but water actually saves your life, right? So it's kind of like Coke versus water. I like Coke. I'm not saying it's evil. Well, maybe it is, but I don't know. <laughs> Just saying it's kind of like kingdom life. Uh, no, kingdom death. So it's a confusing run. Are you confused yet? So Paul is looking at that, and then in, in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 14, Paul goes, okay, so obviously the question, uh, since I would make God's grace bigger, shouldn't I live more in sin, is a, is a big no, because what, the only reason God's grace gets bigger when we struggle with sin or are made aware of sin is because it demonstrates how big of a place God rescued us from. So all he was saying is, when you struggle with sin in that tension where you say, well, hold on, I belong to Christ now. Why am I struggling with sin? When that happens, don't, don't be burdened with shame and guilt because what it re- demonstrates to you is that you needed Jesus really badly and he came for you anyway. So what it can do, what it should do, what it does once we know Christ's positional rescue of us is that it only causes us to look at the enemy and go, man, do you see how awesome he really is? Because I still struggle and he still loves me. So don't go do that to make his grace bigger, just when you slide, slip, or fall, don't fall into shame and guilt and just continue. Step out because you know positionally he loves you. And then he said this in, in Romans 6, 14 and 15. So if we're this free in grace, if grace is this freeing, then why don't we just do whatever we want, right? Because again, our human experience is what? I don't do what's wrong, even though it feels great, because it's wrong and I'm going to get punished or I'm not going to get rewarded. Well, if the punishment or the reward is taken care of now by God's grace, then yeah, baby, do what you want. And what did Paul say last week? We covered it, right? You totally misunderstand the nature of sin, don't you? You thought that this was just behavior and it was right or wrong, but actually here's what you're forgetting. Sin is not behavior, it is a force, and it has an agenda. It is a virus, and it came into our human story and into the story of creation, and its agenda is absolute and simple. It wants everything dead. It wants you dead, your friends dead, your family dead, your marriage dead, your parenting dead, your teenagers dead, your kids dead. It wants creation dead, the world dead, the environment dead. It wants uh, the space dead, the moon dead. It wants everything dead. It wants God dead. It just can't kill God, but it sure wants God dead. And so it is a master. And when you were under that master, you were enslaved to its agenda, which is death, positionally, 
So now that you've been positionally moved to life and you are no longer enslaved to that, but God has in fact, remember the extent of his grace, enslaved you to life now. Why would you go give the master sin and its agenda death temporal power over your life story when you now know who God is and what he's done for you. It's not about right and wrong. It's about death and life. It's about foolishness and wisdom. It's about saying, I would rather die and have fun than live and be free. And so Paul again goes, I- I'm, so- I'm, so- <laughs> I'm just confused. What- you would ask the question if this actually led to life, but God just didn't want you to do it. But you know it leads to death, so I don't, I don't get it. And now in the end of Romans chapter six, Paul is going to take all of this stuff that we have covered and he's going to summarize into three little verses. He's going to go, okay, 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 here it is. Ready? So that we have it straight. The tension between your positional freedom in Christ and your practice or your participation in either the principles of God or your own principles, the principles of the world, the principles of sin, the tension between the two, how does it work? Isn't that the big question? How does it all work? I mean, I'm in Christ, but I still sin. Am I still in him? And if I am, then why shouldn't I sin? And there's so much going on. How does it work? And Paul goes, okay, fine, fair enough. Let's summarize it. Grab the Bibles. Turn to Romans chapter six. Romans chapter six. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide, it's still page 1044. You may as well memorize that because we're going to be in that all through Romans 7 too, which is going to be like five years. So uh, 10,000, page 1044, if you're using one of your Bibles that you brought or a smart device, Romans chapter 6, we're going to be in verse 20. And this is now Paul summarizing this particular little section. Remember that the scripture didn't have chapters and verses when he sent us as a letter. So Paul doesn't finish out chapter six here per se. He's going to move right through into chapter seven. We're not going to do that today, but this kind of transitions the thought process that he's in right now and gives us a summary of everything he has covered so far uh, in this journey through chapter six. Let's take a look at what he says. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, You are free in regards to righteousness. What an interesting statement. Doesn't that seem kind of odd to you, considering everything we've covered, that Paul would now say, when you were were a slave of sin, you were free from righteousness. I mean, you had freedom from righteousness. Wouldn't you think it'd be odd for Paul to say, you had freedom from righteousness after everything he's telling us is that righteousness leads to freedom, So why would he now say, when you were slaves to sin, you certainly were free from righteousness? Because Paul is constantly navigating the waters here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, between our position in Christ and our experience temporarily in our practice of the principles of either God or sin. And so he is sometimes talking about our position, and we need to recognize that. He's going to talk in absolutes then. And then he's sometimes talking about our experience. He's saying, I get how it felt. I get how it feels. Have you ever sat with somebody that doesn't have any interest in following God, doesn't have any interest in going to church, doesn't have any interest in reading the Bible? They are living their life as they want, and you sit down with them, and and you say, man, why don't you want to join the church, read the Bible, and follow God? And they say, I'm just not ready for that kind of freedom. I mean, I'm just, I'm just really not. I mean, I know. Look, I've, I've seen the life of the church, and it is a, an ex- exceptional freedom. I mean, I feel terribly bound here, 
and, and I'm, I'm just dying here, but I'm not ready for that kind of freedom. Have you ever had anyone say that to you? Nor have I. They look at me with pity and they go, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Why don't I want to lock myself away in the legalism of horror? Why do I want to do what everybody else wants me to do and not what I want to do? Why do I, want, why do I not want to submit myself to the insanity of leadership in a church that's power hungry and wants my money? Why don't I want to read a bunch of rules in a book that I have to live by that are impossible to live by? And even if I don't, then God strikes me with lightning. No, thank you. I feel perfectly happy doing what I want to do. That's what I hear. So what is Paul acknowledging here? Once when you were a slave of sin, you certainly had a freedom from righteousness, didn't you? I mean, that was your experience, was it not? Now, we all recognize, those of us that are older than like 25, right? That these things that we were involved in in our younger years where we were ignoring the principles of our parents and stuff, uh, we quickly figure out as we get older, they don't necessarily work out super well, right? So, so certainly there, there are aspects of that that's not freeing, but what Paul's saying here is in general, when you were doing things your way and you didn't have God telling you what to do, that did feel like freedom, didn't it? See what I love about Paul and what I love about God he acknowledges exactly how it feels. So we don't have to pretend. We don't have to pretend as Christians. No, no, I mean, I remember sin felt horrible back in the day when I did it. It was so terrible. No, it wasn't. Now that you know what you know and you experience some of the consequences of sin, yes, you can talk there. But don't pretend that the things that we did before we knew Christ didn't feel freeing. They felt like freedom. So once, when you were a slave of sin, yes, you had freedom from righteousness. Absolutely. Acknowledged. Check that box. Boom. So why isn't that a good thing? Take a look. Look what he says next. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Here is the question. Yes, there was a freedom from the bondage of righteousness because remember, righteousness does bind us. If anyone ever tells you that following Jesus does not require anything of you and does not bind you, then they are lying to you and they are not selling you. Uh, they're selling you something, not telling you the truth, okay? Because when we come to know Christ, I tell people all the time, over a lifetime, he will probably take everything from you. What? <laughs> yes, because your greatest freedom is when you are totally lost in Christ. And everything you have is his because then you are free. This is why, this is why the, the, the author John Donne of that poem I love, which you'll hear a lot through the book of Romans because I love it, right? Last two lines, never shall I be free lest you imprison me. What Paul is saying is that righteousness is an imprisonment, but it is an imprisonment to what? Freedom and life. But when you were a slave to sin, it felt like freedom. But what did it produce? What did it produce? So let's take a look at what it produced. That life that felt so free. What was the fruit that you were getting from the time and the things that you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. It is death, folks. It is death. So here's what he's reminding us of. 
the nature of sin, whether it is in our position, we are children of wrath or children of grace, right? Or in our practice, we are practicing the principles of sin, this world, or the principles of God. In either version, its production will be death because its agenda is death. And so when you play with sin or live in sin as a slave to sin positionally, your destiny and mine temporarily or permanently, depending on which one it is, will be without exception a version of death. So what's Paul trying to say here? It's not about right and wrong. It's not about right and wrong. It is about life and death. This is probably the biggest thing that I would wish that we would encounter through the book of Romans is that Paul is not trying to get us to behave rightly. He's trying to set us free because he wants us free from lawlessness, even though grace is extraordinarily freeing and gives us the freedom to be lawless. I did not just say that. No, yes, I did. I said it. I said it. You're like, my teenager's in the room. You can't say that being in Christ gives them the freedom to be lawless. Yes, I can, because the Bible says it. But what Paul is also going to say is if you are going to be foolish enough to use your freedom in Christ for lawlessness, you will produce for yourself a wake of death, not a wake of wrongdoing. And so you would be crazy to live lawlessly knowing what you know right? So lawlessness, Paul wants to save us from lawlessness, but you know what else he wants to save us from? It's legalism. Legalism. In fact, the entire chapter seven, which we're going to get into after this, Paul transitions right into legalism. And he goes, hold on, don't you think for one second, I'm trying to get you to behave legally instead of lawlessly, because legalism is as demonic as lawlessness. What? Yes, it is. Here's why. Because all legalism is, is self-righteousness disguised as religion. It is you and I trying to behave rightly so that we will either be better than someone else or God will like us more or he will reward us better. And legalism is a self-perpetuating righteousness. Lawlessness is self-governance. Legalism is self-righteousness. And both start with the word self, which defy the very realities of what God invites us into. We are called to submit ourselves to God's governance in his principles, to God's grace in his rescue, and we are to live by God's freedom, not by a legalistic righteousness. We do what's right, not because it's right. We do what's right because it's smart, because it's life, because it's freedom. And that, if we can get that as people, then suddenly the entire paradigm of behavior changes. Because now you walk into every decision, instead of going, is this right or wrong? You go, is this life or death? Is this freedom or bondage? And who would pick bondage and death over freedom and life, even though it temporarily seems so enticing? This is what Paul is trying to help us understand. Now look what he does next. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Here's what I love about the Spirit of God through Paul in the book of Romans, that every time Paul has to in, 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 dive into the reality of the practical part of our practice, our participation, our behavior, and he's dabbling there. He's like, okay, guys, I, I don't want you to think that if you behave in a sinful 
your way, practicing the things that are opposed to God, that because you are positionally free in Christ, that you'll still experience freedom across the board because it will produce death. But every time he's doing that, he gets nervous. You can tell that you might think that if you behave wrongly here, that that's going to also produce death eternally for you. But that's a positional reality. So he quickly goes, but thanks be to God. Or he quickly goes, but remember. Or he quickly goes, don't forget. What? Don't forget what? Even though you might behave foolishly for a time, dabbling in death and bondage, it does not, cannot, will not change your position in Christ. Why not? Because you didn't get it. You didn't earn it. You didn't choose it. You didn't pursue it. You didn't go and earn, do it. He gave it to you as a free gift. And he holds it for you because he is the one who is gracious and merciful. And if we miss that, we miss the book of Romans. And we miss Romans 12, which will say, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, in view of what? God's mercy, not your righteousness, not your legalism, not your, your choice, not your win. God's mercy, and God's mercy is only God's mercy if it is his and not ours. If we came to God and said, look, I recognize finally what a terrible person I've been, and I desperately need you, and God goes, since you have finally seen the light and are begging me to come, I will do it. That is not mercy. Mercy is I'm running like a banshee away from God, telling him to get away from me. And he snatches me up and says, you can't run or hide from me. This is what he's trying to show us. Listen to this next verse. It's unbelievable. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. A single verse, which we've often memorized out of context, so we miss the true beauty of this verse because we use it as a little quick little lead, but now you know what it really means. Here's what it really means. Two things are true simultaneously. Sin in any form that you mess with it, positionally or in practice, will produce death because its wages, its agenda, its demand is death. But thanks be to God that the free gift of positional reality that you and I have, our soul rescue, our future redeemed, our purpose restored is a free gift from God in Christ Jesus given to us. And so you live in two spaces in exactly the same time. You live in a space where you are utterly free. And you live in a space where if you are foolish enough to take your freedom and use it to indulge the sinful nature, you will find yourself experiencing some real death. But not death that will last because that is the gift of God that your eternality cannot be affected by your temporal foolishness. So what Paul's trying to say is don't be foolish. But if you are, thank God for his grace. Right? Crazy, huh? So what is he trying to do here? This tension between my behavior and God's rescue. We, we constantly, I mean, you're fighting it inside, aren't you? It can't be that free. I, I, I can't be lawless. Uh, what about the verses that say, uh, if he who continues in sin, then he, uh, what, what about, y- yes. 
There certainly is a space in all of this that if you have zero care about sin and you just live freely and you have prayed some little prayer sometime when you were 13 and stuck it in your back pocket and said, I now follow Jesus. What James will say, which we covered James already early on, so you'd have to go podcast that. But what James will say is this, that faith without works is what? Is dead, which means it's not actually faith. So our faith, which is the beautiful part of God's grace that saves us, if authentic, will lead on some level to what he just said here, sanctification. In other words, God who promised he will begin, be, begin a good work in you and bring it to completion will do that. So if there's no work going on and there's no uh, greater sense of sin and you just find yourself becoming more and more enamored by the reality of sin and you love it and you hate God, but you know you need Jesus to to get to heaven, you probably don't know Jesus. So that's true. But what Paul's trying to say is don't think that if you know Jesus and you struggle with addiction or you struggle with sin or you gravitate back or you, you do things you don't want to do, that you somehow constantly need to come back and regain your eternality because it doesn't work that way. He holds it, and once he holds it, he holds it, and it's done. So you either have it or you don't. You can never lose it. And once you have it, it's yours forever. But if you don't have it yet, you should get it. Right? So there's what he's trying to say, right? Now, now, here's the deal. Let me try to put into terms that make sense to me. I parent children, eight of them, okay? Most of them are teenagers now, seven of them. One of them is a preteen, not even quite preteen, but he thinks he's a teenager, so he's awesome. Call my 10-year-old. And so I've kind of passed the toddler stage, right? But I remember it like yesterday because it takes so much life out of you that it takes you four decades to recover from the toddler stage, right? <laughs> And so you're like, oh, I remember the toddler stage. Why do you remember the toddler stage? Because in the toddler stage, you are doing one thing and one thing alone uh, with your children. Minute by minute, you are saving them from their own inevitable death, right? <laughs> I mean, that's really the toddler, isn't it? I mean, sure, you're pretending to discipline them and teach them, but they don't really learn anything until later on. I mean, they are learning, so keep at it, but it takes two decades, so it's early in the, in the game. So between the toddler years, you're just chasing, and, and here's the trouble with the toddler, right? The toddler thinks everything that's going to kill it is safe, and the toddler thinks you are the only thing that's trying to kill it, right? <laughs> so it hates you, and it loves danger. And so you're like, I'm your friend. And the toddler's like, get away from me. You are robbing me of my freedom. And off the toddler goes. That is the toddler years, right? So as a good parent, how do you manage the toddler years? How do you do that? So here's what I've discovered in my journey of parenting. There is a certain amount of lesson that can only be learned when the toddler experiences the consequences of the things trying to produce its death. Otherwise, it will always believe that you are the only enemy, right? Because you will rescue the toddler prior to getting hurt every time, and a little pain is a helpful lesson. Okay, so if the toddler climbs the couch, and you go, don't climb the couch, why not? Because when you fall off the back of the couch or the entire couch falls like those YouTube videos, it looks painful and it is painful. And then the toddler at one point manages to fall off the couch and do a somersault and land on their feet and then they take all of your entire collective wisdom and debunk it in one shot. See, <laughs> see, I fell off and I didn't get hurt. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> sure, whatever. It is in times like that where you go, okay, you know what? Instead of running over and grabbing the toddler off the top of the couch every time, what should you do? Should you stay close by? Yes. Should you be ready with the first aid kit? Absolutely. But you should wait. And when the toddler falls off the back of the couch and hits their head on the tile floor, a minor concussion can sometimes be a good lesson. 
right? <laughs> nobody's going to call DCF. Nobody's going to say you're a terrible parent. <laughs> nobody's going to go unbelievable. Why didn't you rescue the poor child from their own foolishness? Now let's change the game. You're outside in the yard. You live on a busy street and you tell your toddler, don't run into the road when a car is coming. It's dangerous. And the toddler does what toddlers do. Same as the couch. They ignore your collective wisdom and they run for the road because they see a bunny or they see something, whatever it is, a friend. What do you think a good parenting move would be then? Car's coming, full speed. Guy's speeding, shouldn't be, but he's on the road. Your kid's running toward the road. You do the math. The kid will be in the road at exactly the same time that the car will come by. What do you do? Do you sit back and say, well, this too will be a good lesson. Let me get the first aid kit. <laughs> no, nobody in their right mind would tell you that that's good parenting. Why not? Because what happens when the kid gets hit by the car? The kid probably dies. Okay, very, very likely, very bad damage, but probably death. And if your child dies, what is it about death that makes it bad? It's final. It's permanent. You can't undo it. See, the, the concussion's not permanent. It does damage, but it's not permanent. And it hurts a bit, and it's good, but death is permanent. So no good parent in their right mind would allow their child to learn a lesson in permanency of death. Are you ready for the goodness of God? Are you ready? I hope you're ready. See, because here's the deal. Here's the deal. When it comes to our eternality, God was unwilling to leave a bunch of sin-enslaved humans to choose for themselves whether they wanted to die forever or live forever. He told us, clear as day, he gave us the clarity, but here's the deal. As we ran enemies of God headlong into hell itself, what did God do? He came for us and he plucked us up and he said, uh-uh, not in the road. Not in the road. I will positionally rescue you from your slavery to sin and positionally bind you into my arms so that no matter how foolish a toddler you might be, you will not, cannot ever die forever because that is my part as a parent. That is not your part. And he does allow us a sense of participation. We have this thing called faith and you exert your faith when I encounter you with a grand awakening and you go, I believe and that saves you except for Hebrews chapter 12 Jesus Christ the author and finisher of our faith oh shoot that's his too another gift of his grace I stand positionally in Christ because my parent is a good parent and would not let me run into hell he snatched me up now mm, here we go Temporarily, on the other hand, I live on planet Earth where there's all sorts of temporal death in my foolish, sinful behavior. Couches everywhere. Mm. So many of them, and they look so enticing to climb on top of and launch off like Superman. And here's what Paul is trying to say. Now that you know what God has done for you and you know who he is and you know he is wise and good and he has given us principles to survive on this planet in a manner that is freedom and life and not bondage and death. What fool would say, since my eternality is freedom, 
I would like to experience as much bondage and death while I can on planet Earth temporarily so that I can enjoy the magnitude of my freedom when I die. That's toddler talk, folks. That's toddler talk. And only toddlers behave that way. As far as I can tell, there are four categories of people on this planet. And you and I fit into one of these categories without exception when it comes to biblical reality of freedom or bondage, life or death. You ready? Here it goes. Here are the four categories. You can do your own math and figure out where you land, okay? Category one, the person who does not believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, came to planet earth, lived the life we should have lived for us, died the death we deserve, rose from the dead to set us free. He is God who has come to rescue us. All of what the gospel is, there's the person that does not believe that and goes, nope, that's not true. And they have some belief version that is their own, but it is not what has been revealed in the great rescue plan of God. So they do not believe Jesus is not their Savior, okay? What is their positional reality according to Scripture? A slave to sin. Whether they believe it or not, whether you believe it or not, that is what the Bible says. So they are positionally still a slave to sin. But they also, on a daily basis, like any toddler with a couch, have the ability, because we have these things called brains given to us by God, to choose on a daily basis principles that are born out of the Bible. They may or may not know that. It's in business books too and all sorts of psychology books, right? Or principles that are their own, okay? They choose to live their way every time. They don't want to submit themselves to anyone. Do any, they spend their money uh, the way America teaches us to, right? As many credit cards as possible to get as much stuff as you can that you shouldn't have, don't deserve, don't need. But debt won't hurt you eventually because sometime the government will pay it off. All of it's a lie. It's bad, right? But we're going to live that way with our money. Relationships. I'm going to do it my way, baby. Life. I'm going to do it my way. Okay, so... Eternally, what is, what, is their, what is their functional space? They are slaves to sin, so their eternality is life or death. Death. Temporarily, they are playing, rolling the dice on their own wisdom, not following the principles born out of Scripture. Their temporal life is death. It might feel good for a while, but it's coming. You and I know that. My, my wife reminded me out in the lobby after the nine... Uh, that, that freedom that Paul talked about in the first verse where he said righteousness, when we were, were not bound to righteousness, it felt like freedom. She said, don't forget to tell them that as free as it felt when you were living that way, its production was always shame, guilt, and insecurity. Eventually, because it is the pursuit of an un, unquenchable craving. Mm. Death, death. You don't know Jesus. You don't follow the ways of God. Death, death. Here's the second category. Ready? Someone that does not believe in Christ as Savior, but they have become smart enough to read the books, and they realize there's all these principles in the books, and they work. So, for example, financial peace, you know? That was actually not originally a Christian thing. It was a guy that took biblical principles of money, put them into practice, and guess what they produced to both Christians and non-Christians alike? Financial freedom. That's why it's called financial freedom, right? Because what do the principles of God always produce? Freedom. Temporal freedom. Do they produce eternal freedom, the principles of God? Nope. What do you need for eternal freedom? Positional reality in Christ, right? But temporal freedom, principles of God. So if you're smart and you don't believe in Jesus, what are you still going to do? 
follow the principles, and you will have on this planet temporal life and freedom and eternal death. Okay, third category, the one most of us fit into on some level. Pay attention because I'm there too. We have encountered the gospel. We have seen Jesus for who he is. We have come awake to that by his grace. He is our savior, but we are still struggling with this idea of lordship. In some areas of our life, we have given it to him. In other areas, not so much because our ways still seem what to us better, right? And so we live as one rescued by Christ. Positionally, where are we? In Christ. So what is our eternality? Life and freedom, right? But temporarily, we, on either regularity or on occasion, we choose our way over his principles. And what do we experience whenever we do that? Temporal, death, but eternal life, because our eternal life is a highway with big cars. And what did God do for us there? He saved us without us. What is the temporal reality? A couch. And sometimes we are just going to climb, fall, hit our head and get a concussion. And these concussions sting sometimes for a lifetime. But they are temporal because when we leave planet earth, they will be redeemed. Praise God. But in my opinion, the dumbest one of the three categories, right? I know Jesus. I trust Jesus with my eternality, but I don't trust him with my current day. Okay. Good for you. That's going to go super well. Category four. You ready? I belong to Christ because I've encountered the gospel. I believe him and I know him as savior. My eternality because I'm positioned in Christ instead of in sin is now life and freedom. And I am progressively becoming more and more obsessed with the principles that he has laid out because I know that they produce not rightness, but freedom and life. I have come awake to the fact that I don't want to live in the foolishness of death. So where my idols exist or where my addictions exist, I do not let them be. I fight them with community and I fight them uh, with the active participation in changing habits. And where I tend to know my tendencies of enticement are my idols. I become aware of those and I consistently participate with God in abandoning my ways that were foolishness. And I consistently engage in ways that are not. The younger I am that I start doing that, the more what I get in temporal life, life and freedom. What I want for my children What I want for me and my wife and for you more than anything else is for us to begin to realize that the younger we are, that we begin to believe not just God's eternal rescue, but God's temporal principle wisdom. And we begin to live by it. The sooner we will be free and we will experience the joy of what it is to not only have eternal life, but temporal life and freedom as well. You see what Paul is trying to do for us is to say, if you know Christ and you are positionally safe, praise be to God that that was his work for you. Since you know Christ and belong to him, what foolishness would it be for you and I to choose sin and therefore death because it is temporarily enticing to fulfill a temporary craving that is now of a kingdom of death that will not produce life and freedom, but will make us more thirsty 
for more junk so that eventually we die of thirst. Who would do that? And this is the beauty that we are invited into as Christ followers to make him savior positionally becoming safe and to make him Lord trusting his ways over ours so that we would know freedom and live freedom temporarily and eternally. And when people look in at a church like that with a people like that, then they will indeed eventually begin to say, I don't know that I'm ready for that kind of freedom because we have abolished legalism and we have abolished lawlessness and we live in the gospel freedom of the principles of God and the rescue of God with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith and our world set on things above, not on things of this world because we have come to understand it is not about doing what is right or wrong. It is about doing what is life or death, what is freedom or bondage. And it is allowing us to live our lives to demonstrate the incredible redemptive reality of God, not just permanently, but temporarily in the principles he's given us. Welcome to the Christian life. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us again and again and again and again and again and again. You have shown us freedom. You have affected for us permanently through your great rescue of our souls, your work and your work alone on our behalf. A grace and mercy we have yet to discover its magnitude. And you have given us your principles clear as day in our relationships, with our resources, in our circumstances, in the way we live our lives. In every way, you have given us every reason to know how to begin to live our life, producing life and freedom, not death and destruction, when we choose you over us, your ways over ours. Give us courage and clarity every day to remember it is not about right and wrong. It is about life and death, about bondage and freedom. And even though it will seem as it once did when we were enslaved to sin, that when we are freed from the bondage of righteousness, we are free indeed. Remind us that we are not free at all, that we are free to die then, free to pursue death like fools. Give us the grace and power to see every day that the choices we make in alignment with you and your word will lead to life and freedom for us and those around us. And the choices we make that are opposed to you and your word will lead to death and destruction for us and for those around us temporarily. Though praise be to God, you have not left our eternal destiny up to those things, but you have done that for us. Your grace is indeed amazing. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.